Well, we've been dealing with some, uh, some very difficult stuff over the last two Sundays, haven't we? If you weren't with us, or if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been tackling the issue of homosexuality in Romans chapter 1, and talking through two very important complementary principles. First of all, that we as Bible-believing Christians cannot back down on the truth of what God's Word says about homosexuality as a sin. God has clearly spoken on that subject, and no matter how much people are striving to try to chip away at that traditional interpretation, God has spoken. We dare not compromise nor water down what he has said. But secondly, the complementary principle is this. We cannot treat homosexuality as evangelicals have oftentimes done in the past by getting angry about it, by getting militant, or by getting political. We mustn't forget our own sin, our own sexual sin. We, we must not forget how much we've been forgiven and then arrogantly go out there and begin to point fingers at the very people that we want to share the gospel with and create an adversarial relationship when we want to love them into the kingdom. So we need to be bold about the truth, but we need to make sure we have love and compassion at the same time. And I trust that between those two messages that I was able to deliver to you a good, healthy, balanced perspective on a very difficult subject. If you miss one or the other, I would strongly recommend going to the website oakhillbible.com, click on that media tab, and listen to the one that you missed so that you have a nice, balanced perspective on it. Since we began our study in in Paul's book of sin, which begins in verse 18 of chapter 1 and runs through chapter 3, verse 20, we've established a number of important truths that come right out of the logical progression of thought that Paul is giving us in this chapter. And since we're finishing chapter 1 today, this is a good time to recap where we've been so that we understand Paul's incredibly logical flow of thought in this chapter. So let me give you just a brief rundown. I know it looks like a lot, but let me walk you through these principles. First of all, that God is currently pouring out his wrath upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness Of mankind on the earth. Paul says that right out of the gate in verse 18. Secondly, the reason that God is doing this is because man has suppressed the truth about God and has refused to acknowledge Him, refused to give thanks to Him. Thirdly, God's wrath is justified because, in spite of mankind's denial, all men do know that God exists. They've simply suppressed that truth. And so man is without excuse because God has clearly made Himself known. Through the created order. Fourth, once a person suppresses the truth about God, the natural step is for him to slip into idolatry, the worship of created things. He will exchange the truth about God for a lie and start to worship tangible things. He will give up the relationship with the the one true eternal God for material things, for things that will not last. Fifth, therefore God actively hands man over to what he wants to the lusts of his heart. And as man has turned from God to idolatry, we know that he is going down rather than up. He is not evolving, he is devolving, and he is proceeding from bad to worse. And finally, number six, in that downward spiral into sin, man's heart is growing increasingly defiled, and what results from that is a, is a pattern of degraded passions and sexual confusion. This is what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. So today we're going to see Paul's final statement on this. His final statement on the descent into madness 
and destruction. And he calls it a depraved mind. So grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Verse 24, hear the word of God. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over. He gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now we come to today's verses, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Wow. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of what? Of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So here's where we're headed this morning. First of all, we want to define what it means to have a depraved mind. We'll start there, and then we're going to briefly go through that long list of sins that you see in verses 29 to 31. And since we haven't had enough hard conversations in the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to talk about something today that I think is an absolute archetypal prime example of what it means to have a depraved mind. We're going to talk about abortion this morning. All right, so let's look again at verse 28. Man has not seen fit to acknowledge God any longer. Paul is reminding us here, guys, that this is the fundamental problem in the world today, that we refuse to acknowledge God. We don't want to recognize him. We don't want to worship him. Instead, what man wants is to worship self. Man wants self-determination and self-exaltation. And nothing about that condition of man's heart has changed since the very beginning. Remember, this was the first sin in the garden, wasn't it? The same sin. And it remains the root of all evil today. We simply do not want to know God. We don't want to recognize that he exists. And we certainly don't want to submit to his holy word. And because man has, seen, has not seen fit to acknowledge God any longer, God has responded to that by handing man over, in an active sense, handing him over to a depraved mind. Now, there's a couple things here to know in terms of the, the language that Paul is using. First of all, nous, which is the Greek word for mind, refers to more than just intellectual capacity. It's more than just the, the physical brains that we have that we use to, to do math problems and to read books, things of that nature. Nous, I'll put it up on the screen, also refers to man's ability to reason. Man's ability to make decisions. So we need to understand it's not just simple brain function. It's more than that. Second, there's a play on words going on here in verse 28 that you should know about. Paul says that men did not see fit to acknowledge God, so he gave them an unfit mind. Let me say that again. Paul says that men did not see fit to acknowledge God, so he gave them an unfit mind. 
Again, in the Greek, there's a play on words here. We have uh, the root for sifid is dakamazo, and the root for unfit or depraved is adakamos. And so Paul is intentionally doing that to grab the attention of his readers. Now, in the ESV, that's translated debased, and here in the NAS, it's translated depraved. But I think the best translation of that word, if you look at the range of meaning, the Holman Christian Standard has it best. It's a worthless mind. A worthless mind. Here's why I think that. Uh, the most literal meaning of adakamos comes from ancient times in the area where they would weigh the value of coins and metals. And so something would be held up, an object would be held up, and if it didn't pass the test or it didn't meet the standard, it was declared to be worthless and thrown away. And that's really what we're talking about here, that it's a worthless mind. So the play on words here is really striking. Men did not approve of God, and God responded by giving them over to a disapproved way of thinking. Men rejected God, and so God gave them over to a rejected way of thinking. This is the, the, the idea that Paul is trying to communicate here. So in summary, when Paul says a depraved mind, he's speaking of people who have refused to acknowledge God. And as a result, listen to this, their minds are disqualified. Disqualified from being able to understand God's will. Disqualified. Their judgment is rendered worthless. They are fundamentally unable to think and to decide correctly according to God's will. Does that make sense? And the natural result of that is that they're going to end up doing things which Paul says are not proper. Okay? If we don't have right thinking, if it's worthless thinking, if it's not in line with God's will, then we're going to end up living that out and doing things which are not proper, things which are morally wrong, things that do not line up with the will of God. Make sense? Got to understand that because we have, a, we have a tendency to jump at an interpretation and see depraved and think one thing when really it's much more nuanced than that. So let's look at what a depraved mind produces. This is verses 29 to 31, and, and this is a long list of sins, is it not? Before we look at the exact wording, let me just give you a historical note on, on what we call vice lists that you'll see in Scripture. You see virtue lists, lists of good things, and you see vice lists, lists of sins. And this is one of those things. The fact that Paul just rattles off, get this, 21 sins in a row, seems a little strange to us. We don't write like this, correct? We don't, we don't just start you know, writing in English and just listing things like this. But this was very common in the first century world of Greco-Roman philosophy and literature. In fact, the formation of what they called ethical lists was begun by a branch of Greek philosophy we know as Stoicism back in the 3rd century BC. And the Stoics, if you don't know, had a huge influence on Hellenistic Judaism. The Stoics influenced guys like Philo of Alexandria and Saul of Tarsus, people like that. And so it doesn't surprise us that when Paul is writing to a church in Rome that he would use a literary device like a vice list. Does that make sense? Good. So I'm just making sure you're awake because whenever I get historically nerdy, we have a tendency to go to sleep. So when you study Greek virtue lists and vice lists, a couple things stand out. First of all, you see that Stoics always connected knowledge with action. Knowledge with action. So for example, justice in the eyes of a Stoic, is knowledge of what is right or what is not right. Temperance is knowledge of what to choose or not to choose. Prudence is knowledge of what to do or not to do 
in a given situation. Likewise, here in Romans 1, Paul connects his vice list to a lack of knowledge of God and knowledge of God's law. So there's a connection there between knowledge and action. Second thing is, as a rule, when Stoics used either virtue lists or vice lists, they lack structure and organization. You would think, as Americans, what we would do is we would make this list and we would probably start with like the simplest sin and progress to the, the most serious sin. That never happens in Greek literature. Instead, what Greek uh, philosophers and writers tended to do was to clump these virtues together and these vices together by category. And that's exactly what Paul does here in Romans 1. So it lines up with the literary uh, uh, devices of that day. Now, the vices Paul mentions here, mentioned earlier, I should say, in chapter 1, understand they were sins against God, first of all, and secondly, sins against our own bodies. But this list in 29 to 31 is different, isn't it? It's not about sinning against God or against our own bodies. It's about sinning against our fellow man. It's very different. These are sins of inhumanity, examples of man's hatred for his fellow man that is born out of idolatry and born out of self-love. This is how we treat one another as natural people before Christ redeems us. So let me, give you, uh, let me give you three different categories here. The first group that Paul talks about are sinful acts. And I'm going to go through each one of these really quickly. If you want to do a word study on these, you know, send me a text or an email this week and say, explain this more in the Greek or something like that. And I'll be, I'd be happy to do that. But we're going to walk through this really quickly. Unrighteousness is simply that which is not right. Wickedness, that which is ungodly or morally bad. Greed, desiring what others have, being covetous. Evil, ill will or a desire to injure another. Envy, to feel displeasure over someone else's happiness or success or possessions. Murder is actually just envy taken to a violent level that ends up resulting in a death. Strife is contention and squabbling. Deceit is either lying or holding back the truth. Malice is a desire to inflict harm or suffering upon another. It's a wide-ranging list of sinful acts that natural man engages in. The second group is what these people are. It defines what natural man actually is. Let's take a look at it. They are gossips. Secret whisperers, idle talkers about the private affairs of others. They are slanderers, backbiters, who use false statements to injure the character of someone else. They are haters of God. That one is pretty self-explanatory, right? They are insolent, boldly rude or disrespectful, insulting of others. They are Arrogance, that's proud or haughty, with an overbearing sense of superiority while treating other people with contempt. And I just realized I left three off, but go with me on this. Boastful, boastful, speaking with excessive pride. We know what that means. Inventors of evil, all that means is there are people out there who will actually, they're actively looking for new ways to sin. Inventors of evil. And finally, disobedient to children, or <laughs> Disobedient to parents, as I was looking at the front row here. Hey. Just kidding. Yeah, so this would be for children, right? Again, self-explanatory. It's a part of the rebellious spirit. They're disobedient to parents. Finally, the third group. There we go. And this is what natural man lacks. 
Before it was what they are, now this is what they lack. First of all, without understanding, and that's both spiritual and moral. They lack that basic understanding. They lack trust. They're untrustworthy. They're covenant breakers. They break their promises. They're unloving, meaning they have no natural affection for anything or anyone but themselves. Unmerciful. They lack mercy. They are cruel and heartless. So 21, 21 results here where idolatry and a depraved mind will take the natural man. 21 things which are, quote, not proper, according to Paul, contrary to the will of God. Now take that vice list and compare it to Paul's virtue list in Philippians 4. The depraved mind cannot and will not dwell on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is excellent, or whatever is worthy of praise. So here's the thing. Human beings are always going to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Why? Because they know that the knowledge of God will inevitably interfere with their love for self. It will always interfere with their pursuit of self and pleasure. And so the natural man never wants to identify sin. He never wants to feel the conviction of sin. And so God, over time, gives them what they want. He actively hands them over to this, and eventually their thinking becomes so corrupted that their conscience no longer serves as a useful moral compass for their life. This is the the process of of rejecting God and slipping into idolatry and the confusion that comes from it. Their moral compass no longer works. Their conscience is not functioning anymore. And so all of their decisions then are made from a darkened heart and a worthless mind. Now, somebody could raise an objection here. They might say, well, look, I know some unbelievers that are pretty good people. And so Paul knew that, and it's true, right? I mean, Paul was quite aware that there were Stoics out there and people that were absolutely committed as human beings to striving against falling into these types of ethical problems. Those people were out there. So what we have to remember is these 21 things, this is what we call a sampler list. Okay, you guys know what a sampler means? You, know, you go to a restaurant, you get a sampler plate, a little bit of everything. This is a sampler list of vices in the first century world. Not every unbeliever is going to manifest every one of those evils, but the point of this type of long list is to give enough examples to show that every form of evil that we see around us today connects back to the fundamental problem of mankind, and that is suppressing the truth about God. It all connects back to that truth. Paul's vice list makes this clear. Nobody escapes from it. And that really is the big idea here. Again, not every, I, I know, I have unbelievers that are really, on the outside, they're good people, right? They, they try not to do these things. But in the heart and behind the scenes, when we're honest about ourselves, nobody escapes this list. I mean, just in case an unbeliever were to look at Romans and say, well, let me take a look and see if I measure up. And they read the first 27 verses and they say, yeah, this doesn't describe me. Well, keep reading. Keep reading because it's coming eventually you're going to find yourself in there and probably, if you're honest, multiple times over. Notice, too, that Paul says in verse 32 that those who practice those very things, those 21 things, are worthy of death. That's, that's pretty serious. Spiritual death. And so he makes it clear beyond a shadow of doubt that two things are true of every single human being ever born on this earth. Number one, 
you are a sinner who is worthy of death. And number two, your only hope is the gospel. There is no escape. Now, so let me get to what I want to talk about this morning. And that is what I believe is the ultimate example of having a depraved mind. And that is the issue of abortion. The issue of abortion in this country. When a culture is sinking into moral decay, one of the signs of that decay is that it lacks self-awareness. It doesn't even realize that it's fallen into such sin. And that is the type of day we belong to today. Our culture is so down the rabbit hole right now, in such a downward spiral, and maybe you've had this experience as I have just recently, talking to an unbeliever about abortion, that they can't see any of it. They can't see the forest for the trees. They can't even seem to think logically through the issue. And it can be very frustrating. Now, I probably don't have to convince you about how bad things are getting out there, but I want to share with you a list that I gave. I was spoken chapel at, at Masters on Friday, and I shared a list of, of things that TMU students are facing when they graduate from college. I, t- I talked about sort of the bubble that they live in at Masters, right? And, uh, and it's a good bubble because it's a, it's a chance for them to really grow and learn within a safe environment. But guess what? Someday they got to leave the bubble. And they got to go out there into the big wide world where sin reigns. And they're going to be faced with a whole bunch of stuff. And so my charge to them was, be equipped for this. Be ready for this. With your mind, with your soul, and with your words, and with your life. Be ready for it. So here's the list I gave them. First of all, know that our culture is celebrating homosexuality. Not just tolerating or approving, but celebrating it now. The very thing that Paul uses in Romans 1 holds up as the archetype. The absolute prime example of foolishness and idolatry we're celebrating today. Secondly, we're redefining marriage completely, perverting God's plan for the family, his perfect design for the family. Thirdly, we're utterly confused about gender. I mean, our culture doesn't know up from down about and, and transgenderism now. Fourthly, there's this increasingly aggressive and very vulgar form of feminism, which is coming in our culture, that seeks to destroy all distinctions between male and female. Fifth, there's this radical push towards socialism, that's happening right now. A recent survey, get this, said 40% of the millennial generation believe socialism is a positive move for our country. That's scary. Next, there appears to be a very intentional effort to promote racial division in our country, tribalizing people, putting them into categories, pitting them against each other for political gain. Speaking of political power, we now have a media They can no longer be trusted to tell the truth. We live in a post-truth media world. You cannot trust anything that's said on TV, print, internet, anything. It's a post-truth world. Number eight, the religious liberty that's guaranteed us in our Constitution is now slowly giving way to the civil rights of sexual minorities. And that will continue. And finally, and to me, this is the one that to me seems most depraved, We are seeing a re-energized army of feminist soldiers out there who are marching for the right to kill their babies. I just want to pause and let you hear that. And I'll say it again. They are demanding the right to kill their children. That should blow us away. Could there be anything more unnatural than that, than that fact? 
Women fighting for the right to kill their babies. Anything more contrary to, way, to the way that God designed the heart of a woman. Could there be anything more evil than the intentional tearing apart and crushing of a baby while still in the womb of her mother? And yet it's not just being tolerated, it's being legislated and celebrated as a civil right. Here's the part that sends shivers down my spine when I think about this. When it comes to abortion, we actually do know what we're doing. We know that we're killing children, and it continues anyway. How many of you guys have, have seen some of the old film, the old Nazi war footage of Nazi soldiers rounding up Jews and executing them? Or you see the old black and white pictures of, of bodies stacked up in concentration camps, and you think, this happened only in the 1940s. How could such evil exist and have an entire country look the other way? Right? I mean, have you had that thought before? It's chilling to see the pictures. You're like, how did this happen? Well, guess what? A similar thing is happening in America right now. 50 million babies have been executed since the dawn of Roe v. Wade in 1973. 50, that's a holocaust. It's five times the holocaust of, the, of World War II. 50 million babies. Here's what shocked me. When you get away from the cameras and abortionists are actually honest, did you know that they will usually admit that they're killing children? Now, they won't say that normally, but if you get them away, and I read a shocking account of this just recently. A pro-life reporter went to interview an abortion doctor, and this reporter showed up with all these reasons why he was going to convince this doctor that they were, he was killing children. And apparently, I read the account, the doctor stopped him and said, Liz, I know that. I know that we're killing children. Here's the quote. It's simply a matter of justice for women. It would be a greater evil to deny women the equal right of reproductive freedom. That is a depraved mind. That is sickening. In other words, here's what he was saying. Women should be no more burdened by the consequence of an unplanned pregnancy than men. And that is the foundational principle that continues to, to uphold Roe v. Wade today. It's about equal rights for women. Here, here's how the logic goes. If men can walk away from a pregnancy without any consequence, then we better make sure women can too. That's the honest truth about what's happening in your country and in my country. 50 million babies. Don't be fooled. We know what all this means. We're killing children. How crazy has it become? Actress Lena Dunham, and I use that term actress loosely. Lena Dunham recently said this, I haven't had an abortion, but I wish I had. She then went on to describe how having an abortion is a sign of bravery and self-knowledge. What kind of a society is so depraved that it believes snuffing out the life of a baby is a lesser evil than telling a mom to deliver a child because she didn't plan for it? That's our country. The answer to that question is we live in a society that suffers from a very, very worthless, depraved mind. A society that can no longer reason, that cannot make sound moral decisions. A society that has suppressed the truth about God and has slipped headlong into idolatry and confusion. That's where we live today. Now, indulge me for a moment. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a whole bunch of arguments that are out there that want to chip away at 
the biblical teaching on homosexuality. Let me share with you a few of the important arguments that we need to be making in this debate because understand this is a debate for the hearts and minds of Americans. And sometimes you can get with an unbeliever and you can make some progress with them. You can pray and you can make some progress with good. By the way, logic and science are on our side in this too. That's what's amazing. We have the logic. So we need to be, we need to be bold on this issue. Same thing with homosexuality. Coming at this with boldness, understanding what the Bible says, understanding the arguments, and then presenting it in a way that's winsome, in a way that is full of compassion and love, but standing on truth, right? The principle applies here as well. So let me give you a couple of the arguments. First of all, one of them is, it's a clump of cells. Folks, that baby in the womb is not just a clump of cells. And I use the term just because that's important. Because did you know a baby in the womb is a clump of cells? And so are you. I mean, that's how silly this argument is. I'm a clump of cells. You're a clump of cells. The baby in the womb is a clump of cells, but not just a clump of cells. And so we need to make sure we understand that argument. We just happen to be clumps of cells in different stages of development. And in every stage of that development, we are still real human persons that deserve protection. That's just common sense logic. By the eighth week of pregnancy, within the first trimester... What's going on? The baby's organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning fluids. The fingers already have a print. That eight-week-old baby is responding to sounds, is recoiling from a prick. It is even sucking her thumb. And what's amazing is that people that are pro-abortion in this culture today, they cannot stand the science on this right now because it hurts their case. The more we study what happens in the womb, the more pictures and video we get, their case is beginning to crumble. That baby is more than just a clump of cells. Second one, location, size, and development are not reasons to disqualify a baby from personhood. This is one of the arguments. Well, the baby's still in the mother. Well, it's really small. Or it's, it's really not very well developed. Folks, in terms of location, now you ladies may disagree with me on this, but I'm, this is scientific, so hang with me. In terms of location, there's nothing magical about seven inches of the birth canal that transforms a baby from a non-person at one point to a person within a matter of hours. Right? To say that that baby is a non-person on day 269, but it's a person on day 270 because it traveled seven inches... Is that logical? Of course not. In terms of size and development, those are just issues of time and care. Yeah, every baby in the first trimester needs time and care to develop, but so does a newborn. And so does a one-month-old and a three-month-old and a one-year-old and a teenager. They're still developing. My 20-year-old son still needed time and care to develop fully. I mean, that's just a t- it's just a process of time and care. It doesn't change personhood. And viability, that's the favorite argument of the pro-abortionists. They say a baby in the womb isn't viable, meaning it can't survive on its own. But again, the same principle applies. A newborn isn't viable. You put a newborn on the ground and walk away, it will die. And so will a six-month-old and a one-year-old, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They need to be cared to be viable. And last time I checked... Listen to this principle. The more dependent someone is, the more responsibility a civilized culture has to protect it. Right? 
The more defenseless and dependent a being is, the more a civilized culture ought to step in and say, we will protect that life. That's number two. Number three, a baby in the womb is a distinct life, not a part of the woman's body in a forensic sense. Let me explain this one because this is important. As the scientific evidence for life has increased, this one is becoming one of, the, one of the go-to arguments for abortionists. And they'll say, you have no right to tell a woman what to do with her body. You have no right to tell her what she can and can't do. Now, when we talk about this one, we need to come at this with compassion and with empathy because this is a very emotional thing, right? Especially men, right? Because we have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to, to pregnancy. So we need to be very careful and tread lightly here. We have to try to understand how a woman can feel like a pregnancy is a burden to her. We need to try to empathize and, and step in her shoes. We need to try to understand why a pregnancy may not be something she's happy about or willing to endure. But in a, in, in a, in a technical sense, we need to get this. The baby is technically not a part of her body. Yes, there's attachment, but how do we define a body part? We define a part by its common DNA code. And Ross can tell you all about this, by the way. I'll default to you, Ross. Right? So you look at a woman in her leg, her arm, her nose, every part of her, there's a certain genetic code, a DNA that says this is one part, this is one body, this is one person. Well, guess what? The DNA code of that baby is not the same as the mom's. It's a combination of the moms and the dads, and it's shuffled up, and every little life that God creates in that womb has its own unique identity, its own unique genetic code. Not only that, that baby's heartbeat is not the mom's heartbeat. Their brainwaves of that child is not the mom's brainwaves. The body parts, the limbs, and all that's going on are not the mom's. It is a distinct and separate life. We've got to understand that. Because if it's a distinct and separate life, it needs to be protected. And a woman can't just say, I can do whatever I want with my body. Because it's a separate body. It's a distinct life. Are we with me? Listen, does a woman in America have the right to do with her body as she pleases? Yeah, we affirm that. But not when it harms another distinct life. Amen? Last one. Whenever two rights conflict, the higher value must take priority. Women's rights matter. Can we affirm that? Absolutely they do. We should all affirm that. But protecting life is always the highest priority of a civilized society. Always. Especially protecting the lives, again, of its most defenseless citizens. Here's a question to ask yourself. Why do we take such care when the death penalty is on the table in a criminal suit? Why do we, why do we go so slow? Why are we so cautious about that? Because issues of life and death are really serious and irreversible if you make a mistake. So we give a defendant, attorneys, and years, sometimes ridiculous numbers of years, to build multiple appeals, and we check the evidence, and we recheck the evidence, because we don't want to make a mistake. Now, we do that for someone who is actually guilty of taking a life, right? And here's a baby, innocent, has had no time to do anything wrong to anyone, and we don't show the same care. We don't show the same caution. It just doesn't make sense. There's no consistency to it. If there's any question or doubt, whether it's a baby or it's a defendant on trial for capital murder, if there's any question or doubt, we always err on the side of life. 
right? Friends, murder as a woman's right is a monstrous idea. It's monstrous. And it's even more monstrous to see women marching in the streets for it with signs that say, I want the right to kill my child. Or politicians who would pander to this thing for the sake of garnering votes. It's disgusting. Are we seriously willing to sacrifice babies for the sake of fulfilling our selfish desires and ambitions? For how long in this country will we celebrate another decade of murdering babies? For this reason and more, the wrath of God is being poured out upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness in this our country. Heavy. Now, before I move on, let me also share something else important. Whenever I talk about abortion, I'm keenly aware that it's possible that there are women in our audience here who've had an abortion in their past. And, And if you have, I know it's probably incredibly painful and raw and, and, and guilt-inducing and all that. So if you're one of those, I want to say this. In Christ, there is no unforgivable sin. Right? There is grace even for something like an abortion. In Christ, your sins have been wiped away. Why? Because his sacrifice on the cross was absolutely and fully sufficient and complete. And so if you've had an abortion in your past and you're dealing with that, and I understand that must be incredibly painful, live in light of the beautiful news that you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's look back at verse 32. Just quickly, two more principles and then we'll be done. Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Look at that a second time. Now, Paul told us way back in verse 21 that all men do know God exists. Whether they want to admit it or not, they do know. And now, look at this. He tells us that this knowledge of God includes a basic knowledge of his moral law. They know the ordinance of God. Wow, right? And not only that, they understand that a violation of his law is worthy of eternal spiritual death. And, and, and though it's not stated explicitly in the, in the text here, I think this implies, I think this implies that there is a knowledge of God's moral standard and a, a punishment for it that can be so deeply suppressed by a person with a depraved mind that it's functionally blocked from his active consciousness. I mean, this is how we have people in our society who are monsters, right? They seem to have absolutely no conscience whatsoever. It's just stuff so deeply in the heart to such a degree that the active awareness of God's law and the punishment for it are effectively numbed. It's like when you come home from the dentist and you can't feel your lip, right? Only this is the soul. The soul is so numb it can no longer feel anything anymore. Amazing. Keep going in verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, look, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Here's my question. Is this the bottom? I mean, is this, Paul's wrapping up this incredibly long but important treatise here. Is this the bottom? Is this as low as humanity can go? People know that God exists. They know the basics of God's moral law. They know that violating that law is punishable by eternal death, yet they will not bow. They will not worship. They will not repent. And not only that, to make things worse, to make their punishment even worse, they applaud others 
who will join them in their rebellion. That's a, they have a suicidal love affair with sin. And they long to see others join them in their misery. They long to see others be carried along with them to eternal destruction. I think it's the bottom. I mean, I think Paul's, he gets to 32, he says, this is rock bottom. And what an accurate description of our culture today, right? We stand back, we applaud. Illogical, unnatural sex. In fact, go ahead and get married. We'll just redefine marriage, yeah. Right? I mean, you feel this in our culture, do you not? Do you feel like you're on the outside now? Like culture is all moving in this direction, and you're like, what is going on? How is this? It's turned so fast, and everybody's going this direction. I said to the students this week, did you know you are now counterculture? Christians are now, we're on the cutting edge of, of, of anti-establishment because everything's going this way. Back in my day, we used to call that being punk rock. Remember, uh, some of you guys my age, remember back in the early 80s? If you were punk rock, you were, man, you were edgy. Christianity is now punk rock. <laughs> because everything's going this way. Everything's going this way and we're standing like rocks in a stream saying no. I'm not going that way. It's very interesting, isn't it? We give awards now to men who surgically change themselves and claim they're women when that's biologically impossible. Put them on a magazine. Don't we? We applaud others who are joining in this foolishness. We celebrate when we see women marching in the streets with signs saying, I want to be treated just like a man. Yeah. It's unbelievable, isn't it? We give hearty approval to women who exercise their so-called rights by destroying babies. I think about the pornography industry. $10 billion a year in this country it makes. There are people who wake up every morning. They wake up every morning with one goal, to create more poison to feed to you and I, to their drooling audience. They wake up every day doing exactly this and applauding for every person that follows them. Sickening. They're literally recruiting mind-numbed corpses and leading people straight into hell. God have mercy on this country. This is where we are. So I'm looking at this text last night and I'm, I'm like, man, this is bad news. I'm, I'm like, Lord, how do I finish this sermon? Well, hope, right? I mean, there's only one hope that comes out of this. And, and by the way, I hope it's clear that Paul has not just indicted certain sins here or certain categories of sin. Every person in this room is under indictment for sin. Isn't that true? So let's, again, let's not get arrogant, look down our nose and say, oh, these icky pagans. Okay? We have to remember who we are. The verdict is in and we're all guilty before God. The sentence has been pronounced. A day of judgment is coming. Now, it's true that the gospel doesn't make sense to all the people out there who are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, who are exchanging the truth for a lie, who are blinded by the enemy and have this worthless, depraved mind. But folks, that's why we need to love them enough to share the truth with them. We could say, oh, they're icky, they're messy, look at all the sin. Oh, they're so depraved. And say, we're going to go over here in our bubble but we've got to love them enough 
to engage with them on these issues, to know the, the arguments, to have the answers, and to share with them the hope that we have. For those of us who are the recipients of God's grace, whose hearts have been regenerated by the Spirit, we acknowledge that the, that the stain of sin covers us from head to toe, and that everything in this list that Paul has given us, we have done, maybe not with our hands, but at least in our hearts. We are guilty, right? For us, the message of the cross is the only great, it's the only great news that we can possibly claim, that we can say, this is our hope. The message of the cross. For on the cross, God announces to us that he has poured out his wrath on his one and only son, the wrath that you deserved. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that truth. He was punished for all the evil things that we've done. And because he took our penalty, we will never have to face the wrath of God. Never forget that. Even as we are appalled by what we see going on around us. Remember, we were once rebels, and that's only by, by God's grace that we stand. Have you ever noticed uh, that verses 18 to 32, it's, it's written from such a negative perspective? I sat down last night and I thought, what would this look like if the passage were turned around and written from a positive perspective? Listen to what it would say. Therefore, God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth about God and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations, so that all received in their own persons the due reward for their faithfulness. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in everything, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness and life, healing, openness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, inventors of good, obedient to their parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, and full of mercy. And because they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to all who do likewise. One is the path to death and one is the path to life. May everything described in that passage be true of us this morning. Amen. Bow your heads, would you?